Greetings, this is Perry Green with God in America. I want to thank you for listening in today. And for those of you that are contributing financially to our ministry, I want to thank you especially for tuning in and for your continued contributions. You're really helping us with this ministry, and I am just grateful for your generosity. If you would like to, you can go to our website, godinamerica.com. That's the word God, the letter N, and then the word America.com. And there are resources there as well as a place where you can contribute. So I, I just want you to know how much I appreciate you and your willingness to help us out and for listening in from, from week to week and day to day. Today's lesson is entitled, Make Sure You're on the Lord's Side. Following Jesus is more than getting him on our side to cheer for our team. It's making sure that our team is on his side, and that takes preparation. I read that in April 1988, the Evening News reported on a photographer who was also a skydiver. He had jumped from a plane along with several other skydivers and filmed the group as they individually dove out of the plane and opened their parachutes. As the video was being shown, each of the members were jumping out, then pulling their ripcord so that their parachute opened to the wind. The final skydiver opened his chute, and then the picture went berserk. The announcer reported that the cameraman had fallen to his death, having jumped out of the plane without a parachute. It wasn't until he reached for the ripcord that he realized he was free-falling without a chute. Tragically, he was unprepared for the jump. It didn't matter how many times he'd done it before or what skill he had. By forgetting the parachute, he made a foolish and deadly mistake. Nothing could save him because his faith was in that parachute, which he never had taken the time to buckle on. No one can wear a parachute for you and you expect to be all right. There's another thing that no one can do for us. No one can make the preparations we need for our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now today, as we think about this lesson, we're looking at Joshua chapter 5. Here, the Hebrews were approaching the coming fight in Jericho. They had to make preparations, and the most important preparation they needed to make was their partnership with God. That's been true for God's people on both sides of the book. Paul emphasizes this in affirming Timothy, who was a brother in Christ and God's partner or co-worker. In 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 2 we read, We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. Our text for today tells us how the Hebrews, and by application, how we can be victorious in the battles before us. We're reading Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Here we read, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. At first, Joshua does not know who this is. He asks, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He assumes it is a warrior and wants to know his allegiance. I wonder if Joshua is trying to be a military recruiting officer here. This group of Hebrews was basically unskilled and presumably inept, especially in regards to warfare. 
Maybe Joshua was hoping to find soldiers sympathetic to their cause in order to help out. Joshua knew warfare. The generation who would spend 40 years in the desert knew warfare. And you remember that in Exodus 17, Joshua led the Hebrews to defeat the Amalekites. Moses stood on the mountain with his raised hands while Joshua and the Hebrews fought in the valley. Well, that generation died off, and the new generation appeared to have no natural skills. Moses repeated the instructions of God for them in the book of Deuteronomy before he died. They had not seen some of the things he described, and they needed to know them. Now Joshua is leading the people into Canaan. They're not soldiers or even farmers or fishermen. They are just wanderers. Yet as we will see with the Lord's direction, they will enter the land and defeat the enemies of God despite their ineptitude. God led them and they followed and participated as they went. They did not sit back, eat popcorn, and watch the movie. They were deeply engaged. In our current spiritual war, we may want experienced, patriotic, spiritual warriors. We may feel inexperienced and inept with no real skills for spiritual battle. We need to be listening to God and following Him into battle. He will lead and He will be the victor, but we have to go with Him and engage the enemy. We know because we've read the last chapter of the book that God wins. It's especially proven by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That tomb, empty of the body of Jesus, as well as his post-resurrection appearances, prove God is and will be victorious. I like the story about a man who was in Washington, D.C. on business at the Pentagon. He'd gotten caught in an endless traffic loop that kept taking him over the Potomac River and back. Spotting a jogger along the road, he called out to him, Which side is the Pentagon on? Keeping his pace, the jogger answered, I think they're on our side. Well, the really good news is God is for us. He is on our side. Romans 8, 31 and 32 read, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Joshua was asking the commander the wrong question. It's not a question of whether or not God is on your side. The question is, are you on God's side? It's not a question of whether or not he will submit to you. The question is, will you submit to him? How does Joshua respond when he hears the answer? In Joshua 5, verse 14, Joshua, the commander of Israel's army, submits to the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? During the American War between the states or the Civil War, President Lincoln spoke with a man who expressed the hope that God was on the side of the North in the war. Lincoln replied to him, We know that the Lord is always on the side of right, but it is my constant anxiety and prayer that I and the nation should choose to be on the Lord's side. Joshua declared his place as he challenges the Israelites much later in his life. He reminded them of the choice they had as to whether or not they would serve God. In Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15, he declares, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
As we see in this incident, Joshua clearly respected the commander of the Lord's army. This would also indicate his respect for God. This is seen in his worship. Perhaps the commander is a theophany, which is an earthly appearance of God in some form, like when the three visited Abraham. Maybe he is an angel. Whoever this is represents the divine nature of God. We too are supposed to represent God and bury his image and his name. We are to honor him. It is reported that in the late 1860s, Ulysses S. Grant gave a cigar to Horace Norton, a philanthropist and founder of Norton College. Because of his respect for Grant, Norton chose to keep the cigar rather than to smoke it. Upon Norton's death, the cigar passed to his son, and later it was bequeathed to his grandson. It was Norton's grandson who, in 1932, chose to light the cigar ceremoniously during a speech at Norton College's 70th anniversary celebration. Waxing eloquent, Norton lit the famous cigar and proceeded to extol the many virtues of Grant until, boom, the renowned cigar exploded. That's right, over 60 years earlier, Grant had passed a loaded cigar along to a good friend to embarrass him in good-natured fun. At long last, it had made his friend's grandson look foolish. Yet Norton's respect for Grant caused him to treat that gift with honor as a prize to be passed down to his heirs. Joshua expresses respect and awe in his worship. In that context of these scriptures, they had circumcised the generation of wanderers. They had had their Passover, and now they were eating from the land so that the manna stopped. Yet Joshua was not dis disheartened. He worshipped. Worship is really a good place to begin every day. God is enthroned in the praises of his people, according to Psalm 22, verse 3. In bowing to worship, Joshua invites the presence of God and is ready to hear from him. He is, in essence, joining God's side. Calvin Coolidge once said, It is only when men begin to worship that they begin to grow. David was many things to Israel, a warrior, a king, a songwriter. He was also a worshiper of God and showed the nation uninhibited and unrestrained worship when he danced before the Lord in 2 Samuel 6, verse 14. It reads, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. Taking time to worship is critical, especially in times of conflict. When the Israelites had to fight, God had a place for the tribe of Judah. In Judges 20, verse 18, for instance, a key question is asked and answered. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. The name Judah means praise. So before the Hebrews would march into battle, they worshipped. In fact, they even praised as they went into battle. Joshua was illustrating this principle. As we've mentioned in other podcasts, we're engaged in spiritual warfare. We need God to go before us. Worship is a key to setting us firmly on his side. By the way, an important point is to remember that worship is to be twofold. It is spirit and truth. It is not enough to outwardly go through the motion of five acts of worship if we do not engage the heart. From worship, we go to our walk with God. In this section, we again point out the need to circumcise the men before going into the land. This is a tie back to walking in and keeping the covenant God made with Abraham. Abraham's faith was so strong that God justified him even before his circumcision, but would still require it of him. 
In Genesis 15, God told Abram of the innumerable descendants that he would have. Then in Genesis 15, 6, we read, And he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. No doubt, Abraham had faith. God knew that he would be the one to be the patriarch to his people. He knew that Abraham would obey God in whatever he told him, whether in circumcision or even years later in the sacrifice of his son at Mount Moriah. The commander of the Lord's army told Joshua in Joshua 5 verse 15, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is a reminder of God's encounter with Moses in Exodus 3. Wherever God is, there is holy ground. This is also a reminder to Joshua and the people to keep the instructions God gave through Moses, that is, the Torah. So in both instances, there was a call to worship God as well as a call to walk with Him. Worshiping God and walking with Him go together. Joshua would soon learn that there is a mightier army than his who would fight with him in Canaan. It was the army of the Lord, led by the Lord's commander. So the question again is not whether the Lord is on our side, but rather are we on the Lord's side? Once again, Abraham Lincoln stated the dilemma in his second inaugural address on March the 4th, 1865. Whose side was the Lord on in our civil war, the blue or the gray? He said this, each looked for an easier triumph, and as a result, less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. Years later, Theodore Roosevelt said, No man is worth his salt who is not ready at all times to risk his body, to risk his well-being, to risk his life in a greater cause. We have a great cause that is bigger than we. We incorporate the cause of Christ into every facet of life. This is especially evident in our current cultural battles. Evil seems to be winning right now. We are discovering depths of wickedness that we have not realized in the past. Have you heard, for instance, of children being sold by way of the internet on the websites of some prominent companies? A child's article of clothing may be listed for $5,000. Guess what? It's not the little boy's t-shirt they are selling, it's the little boy. This is war. This is spiritual war. We must be sure we are united with the Lord in order to fight and win. This is not uniformity in that everyone looks and acts exactly the same. This is unity. Our founders displayed this kind of unity in the American War for Independence. A couple of familiar episodes remind us of their unity, and both of them involve Congress and prayer. The first is at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. The delegates were having a hard time working out a sufficient constitution for our new country. They were from different states with differing points of view regarding key issues in developing a government. Some states were large and powerful. Some were small and weaker. How would these have equal representation? You'll remember that Benjamin Franklin, that elder statesman, suggested praying together and asking God's assistance. Almost miraculously, after they prayed, things began to work out. The result was an almost inspired blueprint to government called the Constitution. The second instance goes back to the very first Continental Congress. 
the delegates decided to open Congress with prayer. Then they began to squabble. This was not because they didn't believe in prayer. Everything they did in their lives had been Bible-based to a large degree. No, it was because of denominational differences. They began arguing over who could lead a prayer for all the different denominations represented there. Samuel Adams finally suggested that Jacob Duche, the rector of Christ Church of Philadelphia, deliver the opening prayer. He stated that he would be willing to listen to anyone's prayer. Well, they agreed, and at 9 a.m. on September the 7th, 1774, Duche read Psalm 35 and prayed a heartfelt and moving prayer. This was an example of religious tolerance and unity for a common cause in spite of theological differences. In every congregation, we can find differences between church members, even theological ones. We have theological differences between denominations. We mustn't judge the servants of others, according to Romans 14.4. We can find common ground and unite for common battles. We actually have more in common with each other than we disagree upon. Why not fight together against our common foe rather than fighting one another? Later on in Joshua 23, verses 9 through 11, Joshua would tell the Hebrews this, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Once again, the spiritual war is God's. Our job is to follow by faith and do what he sets before us, and we're to keep loving him. Remember, we fight with the appropriate weapons. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. When Hitler and the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939, the Polish army fought valiantly against them. However, their efforts were in vain, because they were fighting tanks with horses. Although their efforts were noble, their means were outclassed, and they were rapidly defeated. So what do we do? He tells us in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Many have asked why David picked up five stones to fight Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Maybe it was because Goliath had those four brothers. Maybe it was just extra ammo. David very well may have decided to put everything he had into this contest against the giant blasphemer. He did not know if he would need one stone, five stones, or even more. Maybe he thought that if he ran out of ammunition, he would go after Goliath with his rod and staff, and if necessary, his bare hands. He knew God would be in the battle. Someone wrote this, First I was dying to finish high school and start college. Then I was dying to finish college and start working. Then I was dying to get married and have children. Then I was dying for my children to grow old enough for school so I could return to work. And then I was dying to retire. And now I'm dying. And suddenly I realize I forgot to live. Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Whenever we learn to see, respect, and follow Jesus, life becomes an adventure and we really live. 
We engage the evil enemies of our day with the weapons of spiritual warfare. We fight with God to win and keep our freedoms just like the Hebrews and just like our founders. In a letter to James Madison, Thomas Jefferson wrote some special words. He said, I prefer dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery. God offers us freedom and not slavery. Whose side are you on and how do you know? As we close our lesson, I want to encourage you to keep the light of victory burning.